The 40 days of Lent are, of course, a reflection of Jesus' 40 days and nights in the wilderness where he retreats to prepare himself spiritually for all that is to come. It's understood that this is no vacation. It's a rigorous exercise in solitude and deprivation, not only of food, but of human companionship as well. Sartre famously said that hell is other people. But in isolation and loneliness, Jesus finds himself in a different kind of hell. The reading today is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As I was digging through some piles of old books in the church basement many years ago, I came across this particular gem that I added to my personal library. Charlton Heston presents the Bible. <laughs> now, I've not read this book, but I can tell you it does feature some excellent photographs of Charlton Heston traipsing around the Holy Land with a handkerchief tied around his neck staring meaningfully into the distance. A bead of carefully paced, uh, placed sweat forms on his brow, his chiseled jaw set in the grim determination of an 18th century explorer. I can't honestly say that I'm a big fan of Heston's politics, but I have to admit that I enjoy his acting career tremendously. Like a sort of proto-Nicolas Cage, Heston brought hilariously over-the-top performances to his films, dominating every scene he was in with an indomitable, sweaty intensity. These 1970s science fiction epics like Planet of the Apes and Soylent Green 
often ended with Heston descending into a kind of raving madness, shouting at the top of his lungs about nuclear Armageddon or government conspiracies. You maniacs, he shouts upon traveling into the distant future and discovering the remains of the Statue of Liberty. You blew it up. And who could forget his proclamation that Soylent Green, a food supposedly made from ocean plankton, is in fact made from something else? Someone's got to tell him. It's made from people. Soylent Green is people. Thank you. I've always wanted to do that. One of his best films, though, probably my favorite, was The Omega Man. Based on a short story, it tells the tale of the last man on Earth, a scientist, who survives a worldwide pandemic by injecting himself with an experimental vaccine. And given so much screen time by himself, Heston really chews up the proverbial scenery. He talks to himself, he plays chess with a statue of Julius Caesar, and he flirts with bikini-clad mannequins in an abandoned department store. It seems to be a common trope in these sorts of stories that condemned to isolation, characters will often turn to inanimate objects or conjure imaginary friends to talk to, much like Tom Hanks in that movie Castaway, where he famously befriends a volleyball after being stranded on a desert island for too long. Friends, I have to confess that I came dangerously close to this myself at the height of the COVID-19 lockdowns. I wasn't living in total isolation at the time, having a family, but I still felt isolated, spending all of my days locked in my small office at home like Rapunzel in her tower. And frankly, there were times when I began to question my sanity. Most of you know that I was making weekly videos at that time in an effort to stay connected with you all. And as the months dragged on, if you were paying any attention, you'd have noticed that these became increasingly bizarre and unhinged. <laughs> Much like Heston and the Omega Man, I ended up carrying on conversations with myself for the camera and even talking to a life-size dummy that I had purchased. I named him Fred, and Fred was the closest thing I had to a friend in those troubled times. Hey, it's great to see you. It's been some time. I'm glad you could join me today for this little chat. I hope you're doing well. We got a hugger here. I'm glad to see you too, man. But maybe we ought to keep a little bit more distance, you know, in the middle of a pandemic. So why don't we just have a little seat over here? It's a beautiful space for a chat and a beautiful day. So how are you, Fred? What's been going on? How are things? No, Fred, I couldn't help but notice that you aren't wearing a mask. I have an extra one for you if you wouldn't mind putting it on. I 
I know you're a dummy, Fred, and you don't breathe real air, but it would still make me feel better, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize the word dummy was offensive. What would you prefer to be called, Fred? A, uh, a human facsimile? Okay, I can do that. So, Fred, how's it going? How's the family? How are the kids? Is everyone staying healthy? Is everyone staying sane? No, I think we all feel a little out of control right now. It must be even harder for you, Fred, with no central nervous system, being a dummy and all. I I'm sorry, uh, a human, a human facsimile. Come on, don't cry, Fred. Come on, I'm sorry. So what I think I hear you saying, Fred, is that you want to be a real person? the story of the Velveteen Rabbit, Fred? It's about a toy rabbit that wanted to be real more than anything in the world. And there was a little boy who loved him more than anything, and that love brought him to life. Well, Fred, as your pastor, I care about you a whole lot. Maybe that makes you real, too. Whoa! I'm a real boy! Thanks, Pastor Seth! That's right, folks. Our staff is now meeting with real people, just like you. Just let Pastor Kendra or I or anyone on the staff know if you'd like to get together for a little chat. Outdoors, socially distanced, playing it safe. And until then, friends, may you be blessed and may you be a blessing unto others. And I will see you in the wilderness. So, uh, you may have seen Fred around the church, although you might not have recognized him in this video. This was before he grew his mustache. I jest, of course, but friends, in truth, I have to tell you, I was in a really bad place during the height of those lockdowns. The days bled together, blurred. Any divisions between my personal and professional life disappeared. Everything I love about my work disappeared. All of you effectively disappeared. Save for distant faces on my computer screen that were a poor substitute for a real relationship. I can't even imagine what it was like for folks who live alone or are confined to their quarters at retirement homes, but I have to imagine that it was unbearably lonely. No one would blame you if you found yourself talking to old photographs or the furniture. For my part, I ended every one of those videos with that catchphrase, I will see you in the wilderness seemed appropriate because that's exactly what life felt like in those days, didn't it? Being alone in the wilderness. For 40 days and nights, Jesus retreated to the desert in solitude. 
He prayed and he fasted and he endured terrible loneliness. Now it's worth noting that Jesus appreciated a little time alone now and again after preaching to a large crowd or performing some miracle or arguing with the local religious leaders. Jesus can often be found climbing onto a boat and sailing across the Sea of Galilee. He seems to spend half of his ministry there, sailing back and forth, enjoying the quiet solitude of the waves on his little boat. But it only takes about two hours to make that crossing. Forty days of total isolation is another matter altogether. Now, having said all of that, this text about Jesus in the wilderness is probably not historical or factual. He's alone, for one thing, so there are no witnesses to his alleged interactions with the devil. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time imagining Jesus telling this story to anyone else. So he says to me, he says, if you're hungry, why not just turn these stones into bread? And you know what I said? I said, one does not live on bread alone. And he was all like, whatever, Jesus, I'll get you next time. And I was like, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I just can't picture it. This isn't history, it's hagiography, a kind of biographical narrative intended to further an agenda. In this case, to demonstrate Jesus' divinity and his integrity. And being as this is the case, that offers us a little more interpretive freedom. We aren't dealing with historical facts here, but rather literary analysis. And I would argue that the devil is not an actual character in this story, but rather a reflection of Jesus' own alter ego, his Jungian shadow, if you will, that embodies his worst temptations. Jesus was desperately hungry. The stones on the ground might have begun to look like hunks of bread, much like your coworkers start to resemble a giant turkey leg when you've skipped lunch. And he knew that he could turn those stones into bread, but he had to rebuke himself and hold fast to his purpose. Jesus wanted to live. He wanted to live a long life just like everyone else, I'm sure, but he knew that he could only live a long life by forfeiting his ministry, his entire purpose. Again, he rebukes himself. Jesus knew that folks wanted the Messiah to topple the Roman Empire and restore the Davidic dynasty. A part of him might have wanted that too. But it would mean violence, it would mean war, and there would be blood. So a third time, he rebukes himself, foreshadowing Peter's denial of Jesus after his arrest in Gethsemane. Whereas Peter succumbs to temptation three times, Jesus overcomes it three times. Having said that, he is in real danger here. And I wonder if Jesus could have endured a fourth temptation, or a fifth, or another 10 or 15 or 40 days in the wilderness. The isolation and loneliness are real, and we don't all have the fortitude to withstand the madness that it conjures. Not forever. Not alone. Even before the pandemic, Americans were struggling with an epidemic of loneliness. Our society and our culture, largely defined by rugged individualism, has become increasingly fragmented by technology and politics and culture wars. Making friends, real friends, 
It's hard. According to a recent survey of 2,000 random Americans, 45% haven't made a new friend in the last five years. And two-thirds are looking to change that, but they don't know how. This is especially, uh, especially troubling when you consider uh, that loneliness is on par physically with obesity and smoking, according to scientists. I just read an essay from a woman who discusses her own experience with this. She recently joined a local comedic acting class in an effort to meet people. In truth, I would have signed up for anything, she writes. Comedy class, jewelry making, naked figure drawing, Reiki hand waving, whatever. I just needed to talk to people, ideally ones who might eventually learn my name or even compliment my shoes. I'm thirsty for friends, she goes on. It's embarrassing. I'm far too old to be courting acquaintances like some middle school girl at Claire's harassing strangers for their opinion on $5 earrings. But here we are. Now, for my part, if I'm being honest, I've always found it really difficult to make good friends. My best friends are the guys I went to college with 20 years ago who all live hundreds of miles away. But I did manage to build one good friendship over the last few years. It didn't happen all at once. We met in a professional context and started having lunch together on a somewhat regular basis. That was largely to his credit because I don't tend to reach out socially as much as I probably should, being an introvert and all. Anyway, over time, he and I got to be pretty friendly, but I wouldn't have said that we were close or, or good friends. Not until the day that crisis visited him and his family and he decided, of all people, to call me. I went to see him to find him weeping, sobbing. That's a rare thing to see. It's not something we tend to do with each other. We don't want to be seen when we're at our lowest point. And yet, that may be precisely when we need to be seen and heard and known. And from that moment on, since he confided in me, I felt like I could confide in him too. And I have, many times. And after that, yeah, I feel like I can really call him a friend. Mary Shelley, famous for her gothic novel Frankenstein, also wrote a lesser-known work called The Last Man. It's another story about a global pandemic that kills off the human race, though to her credit, this one was written in 1826, so it was a little less cliche back then. According to the story, a group of survivors flee London in search of safety from the plague, but they find no sanctuary as they travel across Europe, their numbers dwindling. Before long, only a handful of them remain, and eventually, only one. Now, it's worth noting that eight years before she wrote the novel, both of Mary's children died. Four years later, her husband, Percy Shelley, was killed in a shipwreck. And two years after that, their closest friend, the poet Lord Byron, passed away. The novel, scholars believe, was a reflection of Mary Shelley's personal 
grief and the disintegration of her inner circle. And it's widely acknowledged that the protagonist and last survivor of the book, the last man, is a stand-in for Shelley herself. The last man, she writes, yes, I may well describe that solitary being's feelings, feeling myself as the last relic of a beloved race, my companions extinct before me. It's a bleak story, I know, but listen. This is not the end of the world, though it may feel like it sometimes, and though the world we know may be changing more rapidly than ever, but it's not the end. You are not the last person on earth. Just look around you. Look around you in this room. We are surrounded by people, most of them looking for a human connection, about two-thirds according to that study. I know making connections can be hard, but we have a community right here, a community full of wonderful people who could probably use a friend too. Much as Jesus finds in the wilderness, there is real danger in loneliness. If you don't talk to someone once in a while, you might find yourself chatting up a dummy or the proverbial devil on your shoulder, and that's not good for anyone. Even Jesus knows that he cannot stay there for too long. He has to return to civilization, to his disciples, to his friends. Even God longs for relationship, which might explain why we're all here in the first place. So I encourage you, come to worship. Join a ministry team. Volunteer for something. And once you've made a friendly connection, invite someone out for coffee. Buy them lunch. Do it again. Share something about yourself. Take the risk. Make a friend at church. Bring a friend to church. We don't just find God here. We find God in other people. And so I'll leave you with the immortal words of Charlton Heston as he's talking to the bust of Julius Caesar that he's playing chess with, the only companion that he has left. Your move, Imperator. Amen.